I like for my company to be a resource to restaurateurs, not just a brand they buy from. It's a fun relationship. They get a lot out of it and we get a lot out of it and we continue to grow. Hello and welcome to Shopify On Location, a special series from the Shopify podcast team. I'm Shuang Esther Shan coming to you from our space in New York. When you're at a Michelin star restaurant, the whole experience is exceptional. The meal, the drinks, even the plates. And when you pick up that plate to flip it around, there's a chance you'll see Jono Pandolfi's mark. Jono is a premier ceramicist and his pieces are beloved by top chefs. You might have even seen his plates on the latest season of the Hulu series, The Bear. Jono's brother, Nick, looks after operations and together they've managed to grow the company into a profitable seven-figure business. And they're both here with me today. Jono and Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. So excited to chat. I am one of those people who flipped over a plate and discovered you two. So, um, Jono, I would love to start with you. Talk to us about your early experience with pottery and what made you think that as an artist, you can also start a business? Great question. Um, my my initial love for ceramics and pottery kind of grew in, when I was in high school. Um, I was exposed to it, and I had a teacher who took the time to bring us to visit some local potteries when I was in high school, and that experience was pretty impactful, just kind of seeing the medium in use in a way that I hadn't been exposed to in the classroom and seeing kind of production on a little bit of a bigger scale was really interesting to me. So that kind of sparked my initial love for the medium. And, and I loved the process of ceramics, of making something and firing it, and then the permanence of the object. Um, so that was part of it. But initially it was high school, but it was it's a medium and it's a, a craft that I, I studied in college as well. And I spent a few years teaching after college, and I did that all before I started my brand. So I, I had kind of took a roundabout path to becoming sort of a product designer and, and building a manufacturing company. But my love and my, my desire to work with clay is kind of at the heart of it all, and still is. And then so much of ceramics and pottery is about working with these relationships with chefs and huge orders, which comes with understanding operations and managing your resources and timelines. Nick, talk to us a little bit about that side of things. Well, it's it's always evolving. And I think every year that I've worked with Jono, which is almost seven years now, every year has been sort of a completely different um, process in terms of how we manage our operations. So, you know, in 2017, when we were six employees, it was sort of all hands on deck. We would work on one order at a time, be incredibly focused on getting that one big order out. And then when it comes out of the kiln, the whole team packs it up and we sort of figure out how to ship it and kind of figure it out as we go. I think now that we are 25 employees, it's a very different process. You know, we have a dedicated shipping team. We have a warehouse supervisor. We have someone who focuses on dealing with our freight brokers. So there was a big leap from 2017 when we were five people to now when we are 25. And I think just sort of taking it one step at a time and sort of being honest with yourself about what you know and what you know how to do, and then 
what you don't know, you can always ask for help. And we've asked for a lot of help along the way. And then speaking to those big orders, I understand the first big one was with Nomad Hotel, which almost took you a year to complete. Tell us about that relationship and how it came to be. That first order, I mean, and I, and I say that was I say that was our first big order, but you know, to be honest, there were orders before that that felt big, but we were going from doing a couple hundred pieces at a time to our first big order was six thousand pieces, and. Um, Back that early on in the evolution of the company, I only had a couple helpers, and those were part-time too. I don't think I had any full-time employees yet. So the only way that we were going to be able to do that order was to do it with some help outsourcing. So we worked with some American manufacturers to get some of our stuff made. While that was all unfolding, I was um, building our manufacturing capabilities back where we do it in New Jersey. So we did some of it and we outsourced some of it. But the mentality was I knew that this order was an amazing chance to make our name or to establish my name in the field of, of dinnerware, of hospitality dinnerware, because I knew the Nomad opening was going to be a big deal. I knew it was going to be talked about. And the collection that we did was a very unique looking and still is, and it's still kind of our signature look. I knew it would be amazing, and I knew it would sort of, in a sense, put us on the map, and it definitely did. My mentality was do whatever it takes to make this happen. And literally whatever it takes. Get up at three in the morning, drive out to Ohio to work on the situation out there, get up, you know, tracking kilns in the middle of the night. So it was it was fun, you know, it wasn't totally sustainable, but I learned a ton and we achieved the goal of of delivering the dinnerware to the hotel and um, we ended up doing their sister restaurant. Um, and it was everything I wanted it to be because it truly did lead to so many new chefs reaching out. And, and it was the beginning of what we're still working on now. It's such a crazy amount of dedication to here. And also, to your point, this is the starting point where other chefs are knowing your work. And I would love to talk about how chefs are acting as this top of funnel marketing channel almost and which led to the brand starting into direct-to-consumer. Talk to us about that journey. Sure. I mean, your experience in finding the brand is a great example of how so many people find us. So you were at dinner in San Francisco and flipped over your plate, probably Googled us, landed on our website, and saw that we sell direct-to-consumer. And that is how the majority of our customers find us. And so... Over the years, as the business has grown, the two channels, the direct-to-consumer and the hospitality channel, have really reinforced each other. So the hospitality channel is what gets our name out there and what lets so many people find us. And then we sell direct-to-consumer at a higher margin. And so you know we generate more profit on the direct-to-consumer side, which allows us to sort of maintain lower prices on the hospitality side. And that just sort of keeps that flywheel going. Um, but it's worked out really well and has sort of been the growth engine for the company. And then also at times when restaurants aren't doing well, such as 2020 when COVID happened and, you know, a lot of our restaurant orders fell off, the direct-to-consumer filled that gap. So, you know, when one side of the business is really strong, maybe the other one isn't and vice versa. And it's sort of allowed us to grow really sustainably over the past couple of years. 
for me, the restaurant was getting dark. So actually the wait staff was advocating for you guys and saying, you got to check out Jono's work. And my thought was for our next show in New York, you guys have to be on the show. So, but yeah, Jono, talk to us about that relationship building, right? How do you actually establish a relationship and maintain it and nurture it over the years? I realized early on starting a dinnerware company that was focused on hospitality. I knew I was going to have to create collections that stuck around. And prior to my dinnerware taking off, I actually had a jewelry line for a few years, which was really cool. And it was my first sort of real world experience designing products. And it's super seasonal and super kind of everything's new all the time. And as I transitioned and started catering to restaurants and started building my my manufacturing company, which is really what we are and what sets us apart, you know, I realized that it was going to be super important to create collections that our chefs were going to be able to purchase from us a year down the road, two years down the road, five. I was committing to things that felt scary to me, but I knew it was what the, the situation required. So that was that was a part of it, was saying to my early customers, look, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm going to keep doing. Um, we're going to still offer you this plate several years in. So it was partly that. And I think that allowed us to kind of get a toehold and build an early customer base. But then it really is the experience of chefs looking at what they what their peers are doing and what who's opening up and what plates are they using and you know, what's the look and feel of the restaurant? What's the menu like? Um, our name just started to spread organically through the hospitality community because we were offering a unique product. And not only just a unique product, but actually at a price point that chefs could afford. I mean, we're not, we're not, I wouldn't say we're an inexpensive product, but initially to build the business and to get it rolling, I, I asked some of my early customers, you know, they'd say, all right, what's the price on this dinner plate? And I'd say, well, I don't know. What can you afford to pay? And then I tried to figure out how to make it. I did that once, you know, to sort of figure out where I should start my pricing back with my first earliest order. I had to learn a lot about hospitality and the industry and fit my business into that, you know, rather than just be a dinnerware company that suddenly wants to start selling to restaurants. We started out selling to restaurants. So I think I got a lot out of that in terms of building a lean, efficient manufacturing company and trying to figure out, first and foremost, not how much can I charge for a dinner plate, but how can I make a dinner plate for 20 bucks? You know what I mean? So I think starting out on that note, really collaborating with with chefs on their first restaurant, and I was learning a ton. It was fun, and it still is fun, and I still I still do collaborate with chefs, not quite on the depth that I used to, but we still invite chefs and clients to come in whenever we can. And we try to make it a, a really great relationship. And I like for my company to be a resource to restaurateurs, not just a brand they buy from, but we offer something truly unique and it's a fun relationship. They get a lot out of it and we get a lot out of it and we continue to grow. So, For Nick, obviously the chefs act as this beginning touch point and also a great advocacy channel. What elements of marketing did you leverage to actually start the direct-to-consumer side to get the word out on this side of the business? Sure. I mean, we we use multiple channels uh, for our marketing. So, you know, paid social, organic social, 
uh, with a big sort of PR strategy. But it always comes back to three things that we're always talking about. So first thing that we highlight is our process. So we're made in the USA. We have this beautiful studio in New Jersey that overlooks the Manhattan skyline, an incredible team of people who are making the ceramics, most of whom have arts backgrounds and are working artists, and this is sort of their day job. Um, And so we can highlight that and we can highlight this very skilled craft that's happening in our studio. And I think a lot of manufacturers, a lot of dinnerware companies don't have that ability. They might be purchasing it overseas and it's shipping over in a container and ending up at a 3PL warehouse and they're shipping it out to people that buy it. Our stuff is made in New Jersey, the raw materials come in, we form it, fire it, and ship it out of our studio. And I think that's really resonated with people, especially as they try to become more conscious about what they buy. And it also just happens to be really sort of satisfying to watch on Instagram. So we'll post these reels of the clay coming through the extruder and the slabs of clay going on our molds, and they just get an incredible amount of traction. So that has been one really unique thing about our business that we've been able to highlight that's gotten a lot of resonance. The second thing is our relationship with chefs. So as John mentioned, we are really a hospitality first company. That's the majority of our business. It's really the origin story of where we came from. And as a result, we have these incredible relationships with chefs and, um, It's great just from a content perspective. There's incredible photos of beautiful food on our plates that we can showcase. But also, you know, from a PR perspective, we'll do collaborations with some of our best clients. So we did an amazing release with Jean-Georges around the opening of the Tin Building, where we put together a little set of pieces that he uses in the restaurant and sold it direct to consumer. We worked with Missy Robbins, who's the chef at Lilia, on a really interesting bowl for one of her restaurants. And, you know, we're able to sort of tell that story about how we worked with her. And it really helps differentiate us from, you know, brands that sell really beautiful dinnerware, but don't have that sort of story about how these designs got made. So our relationship with chefs is sort of the second pillar. And then I think the third is how timeless our designs are. And as Jono mentioned, when you're selling to restaurants, when they buy a plate, they want to be able to buy it 10 years later or 20 years later because they don't want to have to constantly overhaul all the dinnerware in their restaurant. And that principle has also served the direct-to-consumer side really well. So unlike a lot of houseware brands that are constantly releasing new patterns, new products, retiring old products, We don't release a ton of new products. You know, our core line has been our core line for as long as I've worked for the company. Um, So the designs are really timeless, but also timeless in the sense of, of the durability of the product. You know, we want these products to last a long time. We don't want them to end up in landfills. So they're really made and manufactured to hold up to the test of time. And I think we use those three messaging points, certainly on organic social. So that way, when people like you flip over the plate in a restaurant and they land on our Instagram or on our website, you know, they can really kind of quickly understand what separates us from like a more traditional dinnerware manufacturer. Amazing. It's so cool to hear about the key pillars for your marketing and very excited to get more into the direct-to-consumer expansion. 
I would love to take a moment to thank our listeners for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our interviews from New York. And if you haven't already, please subscribe or follow our show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review with your thoughts for the episode. So we mentioned, of course, so many companies during the pandemic was trying to figure out how to sell online and also shift their business to direct consumer. Tell us about this whole process of trying to start a new channel. What are some things that new founders should keep in mind when they're entering the online world? It was a sort of gradual process for us. So we had had a direct-to-consumer website Um, But it was not a focus of the business. It was like, if you knew about the company, you know, and you really searched for us, you could buy our plates online, but we were not promoting it in in any way. But the pipes were there and we sort of had the ability to take orders and ship them. But when COVID happened and we quickly had to pivot, there were a number of steps that we immediately had to take in order to sort of boost that business. So I think... The first one was just our user experience and kind of making sure that customers could find our products. They were being described accurately. They were photographed well, and they knew exactly what they were buying. So the first thing we did was migrate to Shopify. That was sort of the top priority. Once that was done, I would say that the two kind of most challenging things were operationally. So how do we go from shipping pallets of you know, 500 dinner plates to one restaurant to 250 individual boxes of two dinner plates to 250 different customers. So we had to overhaul all of our packaging and and really be sort of thoughtful about how we ship out dinnerware, which isn't easy. But we were really cost conscious. So we weren't like working with a packaging consultant on really high-end packaging and really sort of beautifully printed inserts. It was pretty bare bones because we wanted to be able to sort of keep our price point as accessible as we could. And then I think the last thing that we really had to sort of scramble to figure out was customer service. So when you're selling really large orders to a small number of customers, customer service isn't that challenging. You know, I was handling customer service. I was working with the chefs and kind of Every so often we'd have breakage and we would deal with it. But when you're all of a sudden dealing with hundreds and then thousands of individual consumers who live in the world of Amazon and expect their packages the next day and expect to be able to return them and sort of if they don't like it, we had to really kind of work to educate our customers about what we were as a business. You know, this stuff is handmade. It doesn't ship the next day. Returning it is a huge pain because it's hard to repack and send it back. So, you know, we had to get really clear on our policies and get really clear with like how we communicated to customers and then set up a system, a customer service ticketing system that allowed us to sort of manage all of that operationally. Yeah, I mean, those are just three points you've listed, but I know that it took so much time to actually (laughs) figure out and like slowly perfect over time. On the creative side, has there been data points that have affected the creative process or the production process and learnings from the direct-to-consumer channel? I think one thing that I, on the direct-to-consumer side, when the pandemic started in 2020, and and as Nick mentioned, that was our chance to focus on our direct-to-consumer audience a little bit. It was always sort of a secondary part of, of what we were doing. When Nick joined the company, it was one of the first things he started to 
help us with. It was becoming more robust, but it was always in the background because the restaurants always took center stage and they always kind of grabbed most of our attention. And we always kind of felt like we worked hardest on that. Um, the pandemic came along and it really was finally, we had been looking for the bandwidth to revamp our direct-to-consumer experience, especially with the packaging. And we, we made some changes that were a long time coming, but also really improved the customer experience. And that registered big time for me because I wasn't gonna change the product. The product was the product. So from there on, you know, it was like, well, how else can we dial this in? And we started to do more. I enjoy seeing the direct-to-consumer side grow, and I enjoy interfacing with our customers, especially at our pop-up shops. We just finished one up in LA, and we'll do at least two in New York per year. So it's been interesting to interface with folks at those pop-ups and sort of talk to them about some of the changes we've made. And then additionally, tweaking the collection a little bit towards the direct-to-consumer side when we realized that for 2020, most of our plates were going to be selling to people's homes. So I put in a little thought as a designer to not spruce up the collection, but to kind of create some new pieces that sort of were a little flashier and a little more attention-catching online. I think that was successful, and that led to our special edition program, which we do once a month, we re release a new special edition. So it's it really important to our company to keep our collections kind of the same over time. We've said that a bunch, but that's one thing that we know really helps our direct-to-consumer audience kind of stay engaged and, and enjoy seeing what we do and give me a little bit of work to do as a designer on and putting out a new shape or a new color once a month that is typically not available to the direct-to-consumer crowd. So that's another thing we've done to sort of keep that enticing and, and fun for them. Keeps them coming back to the website. Keeps right. them coming back to the website, products sell out, and then people will sign up to be notified. And that's a really useful thing. You know, the more we do this, the more Nick finds ways to glean information and, and valuable information and find ways to work with it. And, and that really is the back end of growing the business and growing the direct-to-consumer stuff. And then, you know, even for the team growth as well, you mentioned from six artists to now 25. I think the question here is, how do you manage a team of artists where you still need some sort of uniformity in the product that they create? And how do you inject creativity in their day and make it an enjoyable workplace for them? That's a good one. I feel like that's my biggest job now. Um, you know, I've learned a lot from Nick over his years being with us because he's got he's got so much more experience in in business and he's worked at Google. He's been places and done a lot of things that I haven't experienced in the same way. And I think one thing that he said to me that really stuck with me early on was, and, and we probably had 15 employees at the time, was, you know, when your company gets to 24 employees, that's when they say, they in quotes, I don't know where this comes from, <laughs> but that's when they say that that's when it gets hard for the CEO. You you don't know everyone as well. You think you know everyone. You think you know how to do everything, but you don't. So that stuck with me. And, and we, we passed that point pretty recently, but it really resonated with me because my employees' experience and work-life balance is extremely important to me. And I want to share that with my team. So 
when I learned that or when that thought came into my mind and I couldn't unthink it about 24 employees being that sort of inflection point, I found ways to extract myself from some of the little more tedious jobs that I was still involved with, maybe that I like at work, like maintaining equipment and stuff like that. But I see it as my biggest job now to really stay plugged in with my team and focus on their experience. And that is the key to my company continuing to grow. So that's um, extremely important to me. And I think another thing that we sort of peeled away as our business slowed down during the pandemic, one thing that we worked on, we now have a set of core values for the company, which is really helpful because as I'm not as close in touch with my team as I've always been or as I feel like I am, they can refer to our core values from time to time to sort of I hope think more like I would think in certain situations. And our first core value is built from scratch. And that one's like the really the most important one to me because the company's built from scratch. And so I feel like my team, I want them to feel that first and foremost. But the others are resourceful, improving constantly, collaboration, and keep things positive. And that kind of like helps to set the stage and start the conversation with my team about what what are we all about? What's important here other than getting plates out the door? And yeah, Nick, talk to us about the, the benefits and also the work environment. I think that's so unique. Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, John was right. Sort of as the company has grown, his role has evolved to be sort of the chief like culture czar. And I think a lot of what he and I spend our time talking about is is the organization set up correctly? Do we have the right people in management roles? Are they providing feedback in a way that is sort of supportive? And so, you know, Jono spends a lot of time sort of thinking about the vibe in the studio and kind of maintaining that vibe and making sure that now that we do sort of have a management layer, that they are managing the rest of the team, you know, the way that we want them to. So we spend a lot of time on that. Operationally, you know, now we have full sets of SOPs and like we've really documented our process in a very diligent way that we hadn't previously. You know, when it's just 10 people, everyone kind of knows what to do. You figure it out. You solve problems as they come up. But now that we're onboarding people regularly and the team is growing, we put did a big push last year to really document our whole process. So starting with the core values, then kind of going down into just like, what does that mean on a day-to-day basis? And having that documentation has allowed us to grow sort of more easily and without kind of as much hand-wringing about how hard will it be to get people on board. And then as you, you mentioned, kind of increasing our benefits each year and really thinking a lot about our benefits and sort of financially, how can we support our employees, um, I think has been a big advantage. You know, when you post a ceramics production job in New York City, you get a lot of applicants um, because there just aren't that many places to do ceramics production in New York. And I think we are one of the few in the greater New York City area. We're in New Jersey, but we're right next to New York City. So a lot of our staff live in New York. That offers, you know, PTO, health insurance, 401k, and sort of a standard suite of benefits that a lot of sort of arts production jobs don't have. And that has allowed us to really retain people in a way that you know, a lot of arts jobs can't do. And that's sort of also been a really big key in maintaining 
the consistency and quality of the product. You know, if, if we had a ton of turnover, it'd be a lot harder to maintain that level of quality. But um, because we've been able to keep growing the business, we've been able to keep evolving people's jobs, also giving our team opportunities to sort of grow their skills and grow into new positions as the business grows has allowed us to sort of maintain that momentum and, and really keep the quality high. And then even in addition to paid time off, retirement funds, the small thing of just allowing the artists to use the studio mm, after course. hours, I think is also so special. Yeah. And we've been seeing that a lot more, you know, having the team stay late, use the kilns, use the clay, kind of work on their craft uh, and hang out after work, after they're done, you know, doing their sort of production for the day to kind of hang out and just throw on the wheel um, is really cool. And Jono... You know, we have a canoe trip each year that Jono is always very excited to organize. And I think kind of that's why I say he's the chief culture czar and kind of make sure that we're doing these fun things because it is a really physical job and it's it's hard work. And a lot of our staff is on their feet all day or they might spend a few hours in the kiln room, which is really hot. So kind of remembering to like pause every so often and and to remind people that we're, we're lucky to be doing this it's a great environment and as you said like they're able to sort of build on their own personal arts craft which is really great amazing and then to close things off i would love to hear from the both of you about just being a business based close to new york because of the food scene artists actually dream of living in new york so what is it about the city that impacts those industries and also your business i think i like about being in new york i like the saying if you can make it here you can make it anywhere i don't know if that's true but it's it's the vibe you know it's it's new york i think it's a self-selecting group of of people and it's not always self-selecting but those of us who are here and choose to conduct our business here um it's for a common reason of and and especially when it comes to food it's it's a nucleus of talent and excitement and um kind of always what's new you're always going to find it here and i think you know doing what we do it is hard to build a manufacturing business in, we're not in New York City, as Nick said, but we're only a couple miles away. But, you know, we're still in the metropolitan area. We're still in an urban setting and it's space is expensive. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why you might want to do this out in the country. <laughs> but being in New York, you know, this is where, where the energy is. This is where the chefs are. This is where people are flipping plates. This is where chefs from other states fly in to to check out five new restaurants in a weekend and to see what everyone's doing to check out all the new spots and that's how our brand spreads you know so i love being here i love the talent that's here in terms of our workforce and i think it also plays back to work life balance and a good lifestyle for our team because we've noticed with some of our domestic production partners that aren't in necessarily in urban areas, employee retention can be a little more difficult. And here you can work at our company, you can do ceramics nine to five, you can have benefits, and you can also be part of the NYC art scene, you can be part of the music scene, 
or you can at least, you know, be exposed to it and be around it. And, and to me, that's a quality of life bonus for sure. You know, it's funny, Jono and I, every so often we'll see a huge empty factory for sale, like up upstate New York. And we're like, oh my God, it'd be so nice to be up there. We'd have so much space. You know, we could operate so much more efficiently and it would be so much more financially feasible. But the more we talk about it, it just doesn't seem to just jive with our company. And I think kind of tactically, the big thing is just the amount of people in the New York City area that um, are passionate about ceramics and want to work in ceramics. It's very hard to find outside of a, of a big city like this. And of course, our clients are here and that effect is really important. But yeah, I think even though we're a manufacturing company, you know, we are sort of tangentially part of the New York City art scene. Jono actually has a show at Greenwich House Pottery, which is this real institution in, in downtown New York. So, you know, some of the work that comes out of our studio is also fine arts in addition to dinnerware. And then, you know, a lot of our team is doing their own work on the side. And so when we have our monthly all hands at the studio each month, sort of the last part of our all hands is our team sort of announcing what art shows they're in. And then, you know, I'll see folks that on the glazing team and in the forming team sort of showing up at different art shows where they're showing art and, and kind of that all just kind of adds to the morale and the excitement of working at the company. And, and it's great. And I think that would be really hard to find outside of any big city, but certainly outside of New York. Yeah. Well, it sounds like New York is the perfect home. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jono and Nick, for being here. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for inviting us. That's Jono and Nick Pandolfi of Jono Pandolfi's Design. And thank you for joining us for this special episode of Shopify Masters. Our show is produced by Megan Coyle and Gogo Zoger, mixed and mastered by Matt Shorts and Miku Bedlam. Video production by Matt Nineberg. Special thanks to Genevieve Garner and Easton Carter Angle. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer, and I'm your host, Shwang Esther Shan. Tune in next week for another episode of Shopify on Location in New York City. Thank you.